Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode is from a live recording that took place on September 5th of this year. To get us started, our facilitator, Manvinder Kaur, will introduce today's speakers. Thank you for tuning in to today's webinar hosted by the Sick Research Institute. Now, I'd like to introduce you to today's presenters. Harinder Singh is a widely respected educator and thinker who is deeply in love with One Force, the oneness that radiates in all. He serves as the Senior Fellow, Research and Policy at the Sick Research Institute. He currently resides in the United States with his wife and two children, and his current focus is on availing the message of the Guru Granth Sahib to global populations and developing critical thinking in Sikh institutions. We also have Surinder Singh Jodka. He's a professor of sociology at JNU in New, De- in New Delhi. He researches on different dimensions of social inequalities, old and new, and the processes of their reproduction. The empirical focus of his work has been the dynamics of caste, studies of agrarian social change, and contemporary rural India, and the political sociology community identities. His most recent publication is India's Villages in the 21st Century, Revisits and Revisions, uh, among, among many, many others. I'm very excited for today's conversation, which I get to, so we'll get right into it. Um, So, yeah, before this webinar, we had a great conversation around definitions, as we somehow usually do. Um, So the term caste, we sometimes, I think, passively use it without directly engaging with it or thinking um, and understanding what it actually means, Uh, thinking about it as a European word and asking what does it truly mean as it's kind of uh, been assumed as a part of our vocabulary. I'd like to start off our conversation today by engaging in one of my favorite activities, deconstructing. Uh, so deconstructing the term caste. I'd love to hear from you, Professor Jodka. Um, what is caste and how has it how has it come to be understood as it is today? So how have we come to know it, as you say, in this uh, religion-centered orientalist way? I'm not a deconstructionist. I don't really know what does that mean. I'm a sociologist and I'll try to kind of give you a historical uh, uh, perspective on this. Uh, yeah, it's actually a very, very important question because uh, in the present context, the moment we think about caste, we think about India. The moment we think about caste, we think about Hinduism, we think about it being something which has been there since Ring Vedas and Manusmriti was itself uh, composed sometime in uh, the first century of the common era. It has been unchanging. So this is a kind of mythology which begins with the way caste begins to be talked about. And who begins to talk about caste? Uh, actually, the word, as we know, is an English word, uh, or one should say it's a European word. It's not really an English word. It was first used uh, in South Asian context by the Portuguese. And obviously, when they used this term, when they arrived in, uh, uh, in on the coasts of uh, Kerala and Goa, uh, and they obviously uh, saw something which uh, reminded them of something else, which they had at home. And this was 
division, description-based, strict divisions across social groups. So the caste is actually a European word, and it was applied to India. Not that caste did not exist in India. There are some people who would say that you know it was a British invention. I don't uh, subscribe to that view. There were divisions, or those divisions had their own local names. Uh, the most obvious names that we all familiar with is Varna and Jati. But there is no corresponding word in any of the South Asian languages which translates uh, caste into one single word. Now, Varna and Jati is again something which is a standardized version of uh, what one should say uh, Indian languages today. Uh, historically, they have also had their own specific uh, uh, kind of uh, etymologies and 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 uh, uh, linguistic systems. For example, in north northwestern India. We don't really use the Varna so much. We talk about Zat and Biradris. Now, Biradri is something which has not really come into the social science vocabulary when we are talking about hierarchy. But Zat has very easily been kind of transported into Jati. Well, Jati is a very generic word. Jati is something which is kind of another name for any kind of classification. And this classification could be of anything. Like Jati word could also be used for plants. There are different kinds of Jatis of plants. Or men and women are different kind of jatis. So these are words which have a very different kind of uh, origin and historical origin. And varna, yes, it does exist in ancient Indian uh, mythology, but it is largely a mythological category. If you go on ground, go to the ground, uh, you don't really have the idea of varna through which people regulate their lives. Um, not that it is not there. I mean, there is uh, some idea of varna at least uh, uh, since 18th, 19th century, it has become more popular. But before that also, for example, in, in Sikh Bani, also the word Varan comes. And it's not that it is, it's not there. But its actual uh, structure varied significantly across regions. Uh, South India was very different from North India. Even today, it is very different. Uh, as one would expect, it's such a large region. Every region would have its own kind of social structure evolving over a period of time in interaction with the various kinds of forces, ecological forces, political processes, economic realities. Now, if you look at the word Brahmin, now Brahmin is obviously something which uh, uh, is very familiar and it is pan-Indian, but even there you would find significant differences. Uh, being Brahmin in South India, uh, the region where they were also given land titles by the rulers in 8th, 9th century, uh, they are very different kinds of species. They are very powerful uh, classes in rural India, also rural Tamil Nadu, for example, uh, the village studies would tell you that there would be one small locality of Brahmins, which would be called as Agraharam, and rest of the village is actually kind of their slaves. Uh, there were in-between people who would work for them as, as cultivators, tenants. But if you come to Haryana and Punjab, uh, Brahmins don't really matter, even though Brahmin exists, even in a typical Punjabi Sikh village until some time back, two, three generations back, four generations back, Brahmin also had a kind of ritual role in, in life, which has now receded. But even in Haryana, where I've done my fieldwork, uh, if you are a Brahmin, nobody really cares for you. But even at Paringan level, a Brahmin who, for example, form, performs death rituals is an untouchable Brahmin for the other Brahmins. So it's a very different kind of reality. Similarly, in Kerala, in Tamil Nadu, you don't have a Varana called Kshatriya. So you have uh, Brahmins and you have uh, Atishudras, untouchables, and then in between you have what are now called as the backward classes. So every region had its own ascription-based hierarchies over which a particular kind of uh, linguistic system was superimposed during the British period, 
when they introduced census uh, in 1870, when they wanted to enumerate Indian population, they wanted to classify Indians into uh, kind of a pan-Indian uh, classifications, B, something which was comprehensible to them on the basis of whatever textual reading they had done about India. They thought everything is to be understood through the texts. The texts they had read were all the Brahminical texts. India, even ancient India was very diverse. There was Buddhism, there was Jainism, there were other kinds of faith systems, what we call as Bhakti, began to evolve in different parts of the country very early on uh, in, the, in, the, in the common era. And then it has, again, its diversities across regions. We know about Kabir, we know about uh, uh, people like Ravi Das and of course Sikhism. So these are different kinds of movements. Islam comes into India uh, while uh, Muhammad was still alive. Christianity comes to India before it goes to Europe. So this was a very diverse land. And then it is during the colonial period when they are trying to construct an idea of India for themselves, partly because of ignorance and partly, I think, also because of design, because they wanted to produce a particular kind of common sense about India for themselves, which would give them the sense that this is a land of Hindus and Hindus are incapable of progressing on their own. Therefore, they need us. They need colonial modernizers. Only then they can. And caste was something which was most easy a way of saying that you are incapable of changing, incapable of becoming modern. So it was in some sense generalized for India as one single system. There are scholars like Bernard Cohn and Nicholas Dirks who have written on it very extensively how once the colonial census was introduced, people began to tune in their local identities into the pan-Indian census-based, classification-based identities. And then they began to demand from the colonial rulers, began to mobilize themselves don't list us as Shudras, list us as Kshatriyas. Don't list us as Atishudras. We are not Atishudras. We are actually a branch of another upper caste so that they would acquire some kind of status. And then that acquired a life of its own and nationalist movement in some sense also used those categories. Along with that, you also have a kind of emergence of what one would call as pan-Indian demographic Hinduism, where Hindus begin to see themselves in terms of numbers. And numbers become very important during the colonial period because of their own divide and rule policies and the way they thought about South Asians, that they were all religion divided communities. So they wanted to make sure how many Hindus are there, how many Muslims are there, how many Sikhs are there. And accordingly, they should kind of allot them seats in assembly and representation. They thought that we were incapable of being rational individuals who would be able to vote and elect their representatives. So you have this kind of colonial stereotypes and the manner in which it has evolved from the past, but also very actively nationalists, the way they kind of adopted, adapted to those, those categories. And then obviously you have the history of 20th century when the world begins to see India and caste as, as something which is kind of uniquely India. So India is an exceptional category. And then caste, when they talk about caste in the West, they think it comes from India. So it's a kind of long history of the concept and there's plenty of literature, but we should not take it for granted as a simple kind of signifier of Indian society. And you have, the moment you think about caste, you think of these five or four varnas, and that is actually not the case. Ground realities are very complex and they continue to be very diverse. We need to also kind of look at the materiality of caste, how at the local level, at the regional level, in relation to local politics, it has always been evolving. It has always been changing like any other social institution anywhere else in the world. Caste has also been changing and evolving, but it's a reality. It's not something which, you know, colonial rulers did 
play their own role uh, in standardizing category, but that doesn't mean they invented it. It pre-existed at the local level and it continues to have a local character even today, even though uh, Indian constitution in some sense institutionalized it into standardized format of general categories, uh, reserved categories and OBCs and stuff like that. But that is again kind of part of uh, uh, the way categories evolve and the way societies evolve. Thank you. I think um, in my understanding of deconstructing, that is, yeah, kind of exactly what we have done right now, kind of what we have constructed to be simple. Yeah. We've, yeah, pulled apart the historical, the political, the many, the multi-layers um, that function in what we sometimes simply think as caste. Um, so, Heard this thing. Uh, moving to understandings of what caste looks like in the Sikh context. Uh, what has the role and practice of caste looked like in the Sikh context historically? I think um, popular understandings around Sikhi is that it is, of course, anti-caste. So therefore, if individuals are to adhere to its foundational values, caste practices don't exist, exist or would be eliminated or and I'm not saying that any of this is true, I'm merely outlining arguments, but because uh, it is thought that Sikhi branched out of Hinduism, the influence of caste will always be present. Um, the idea that the actors have changed, so Jats as opposed to Brahmins, uh, but the relational structures remain intact. Oh, um, good morning, or greetings of the day, wherever you might be in the world. So Manindar, I'm gonna actually start from the macro view, which Professor Jodhka was just explaining. And if you take all those complexities of what the Portuguese started in terms of classification or naming it caste to what the index structures have been, if you do it just a simplified mathematical understanding of it, you end up with something like 3000 castes and 25,000 subcastes. So think about the complexities, just even in this oversimplified way. If I take all that and I look at the genius of the Guru Sabs, this is where the Sikh context comes in. You know, when you're dealing at a community level, uh, there are, you take what is complex, you simplify it and you address it. So where is the number one source for how the Gurus uh, contextualize what we are calling caste system now? Well, in Guru Granth Sahib, it's very simple. The two most oft used word to describe these caste dynamics are uh, what is called Varnas, which finds its places from a Vedic times, as you just heard. And at some point it gets codified by the Manusimritis. And then the second word you hear is Jat, which is sort of like the subcaste, but it not really. Uh, this is where um, the mobility aspects of the caste come in specifically within the Punjab's context and the six. So let me actually focus on these two words first. In Guru Granth Sahib, the answer is very simple. There is, I know some academics have written articles on this that uh, it's inconclusive as to what the Guru's stand has been. Well, the Guru's stand on the Varna is very conclusive. There is actually zero debate when we look at the manifesto of the six, which is in Guru Granth Sahib, because when the Shabads are as explicit as um, that, uh, the, the Varnas, when we talk about the Varnas, that you can, there is Upadesh Chaho Varna Ko Sanja, you know, so this idea about that the message is exactly same to the all Varnas. Uh, we don't have Suvarnas, the good or the better ones, or Avarnas, ones who don't even belong into this. 
which will be what we now call Dalits and women and people who are not belonging to this codification. So the part which is very, very clear on the Varna Ashram Dharam, which is the Indic version of ideological space of what I call legal apartheid, Guru Granth Sahib is very clear on it. There is very conclusive determination by the gurus that we do not entertain the Varna Ashram Dharam. And this is why the word Dharam becomes very interesting for Sikhs and for the Guru Sahibs because they say this Dharam is the one which is actually looting people. This dharam, which is brought in the karmic theory, karam taram pakhand jodhisa, that these are the pretenses which have been looting the people in the name of fear. Where it gets a little complicated is the word jat. So let's spend a couple of minutes on it. And I, in fact, want to invoke a couple of specific shabads on, on the word jat. For example, there's a shabad which says, jat ka garab na kar murak gavara. Jat ka garab na kar murak gavara. Is garabte chalat bahut vikara. Because this caste pride, as we call it these days, this idea of pride, the idea of your classification in terms of jat. In Punjabi culture, by the way, jat is uh, sung quite a bit by Sufis as well and other some traditions as well, where this says, Kise na teri jat puchhani. You know, it has a literal meaning and figurative meaning, which means nobody will care about your status. And this is what Guru Sahibs are attacking. While they recognize and acknowledge their own uh, classifications in the societies they were living in, what they were addressing very vehemently was that the pride which is based on your social strata or your religious or this classification, he says that pride causes lots of vices, lots of criminal activities. And this is very, very stark. And the way to get out of that, Guru Sahib was very clear, which is the jat path, what gets used a lot in Punjabi even today. It says, Gurmukh jat path name vadeai. Now, this is very important part that those who become guru oriented, Gurmukh, and the way Gurmukh is written, technically speaking, there is a sehari, which means it's not the person. This is saying, how do you become guru oriented? How do you become wisdom oriented? He says, people who are caught up in jat path, they will never be able to get out and they will be always be caught up in the pride and they will always be committing crimes, we call it these days. And the way to get out of that is by following the guru's way to become part of the nam culture. So I think this jat path is where the real play for the six is. And in Punjabi culture, you know, even today, uh, when there's a cuss word used, the way it's used is for the choti jats, the downtrodden or the underprivileged or the ones without privilege. But in Gurbani, there's a word play on that. It says the, the, your classification does not decide who's kamjat because that's what the index system had called it. Guru Sahib says, those who live in the forgetfulness of the one, they are the kamjat. So what is going on here is the, there's an acknowledgement of that they are born in these social stratas, this idea of jatpat. They understand that it has its own issues, but what they're countering is the pride which is based on that and also the kind of activities which are creating discriminations. And I'll end, mention one more thing from Gurmani's angle here. And eventually, what matters to the gurus is, who do you identify with? Because it's a issue of privilege, issue of underprivilege and privilege at some point. These are the vocabularies we use today. And Guru Nanak Sahib very clearly says, Nicha andar nich jat, nichi hu at nich, nanak tinke sang saath vadeyaan, vadeyaan seon kya reis, jithai nich samaliyan, tithai nadar teri bakshis. This is very, very important. Guru Nanak, whose historical uh, 
uh, Jat is known. Guru Nanak, whose lineage and tribe is identified in Guru Granth Sahib, in secondary text tradition of Sikhs, in early history, uh, historical literature of the Sikhs. There is no question about that. There is a full acknowledgement that which Jat I'm coming from. But when Guru Nanak comes to address it in the community, basis of discrimination, basis of these mobilities, which we will get into later, he is very, very clear in the message to everyone, including his own clan and lineage, his Jat or his Biradari or the goats, the last names which are used to. He says, look, the only place what, what matters is that Guru Nanak identifies with the lowly, low, lowest of the low, which means the underprivileged or the ones who do not have any privilege or the ones who are even below this. This is an attack on what is now or earlier in the Varnashram Dharma were people who are not even brought into the classifications. Uh, uh, the women included, non-Varnas included, what we now call Dalits and Mool Nivasis and Touchables, or what in India is legally called OBCs, SCs, and STs. And he, Guru Nanak Sahib says, look, those who are in the establishment, I'm not here to emulate them. This is very important. He says, Vadeya He says, I'm not here to emulate them. I'm not here to imitate them. He says, what I'm really after is if you're looking for grace, and this is the context of caste. If you're looking for grace, your jat and varan does not matter. What matters is if you have taken care of the underprivileged. It's, it's in this context we need to be seeing things. So uh, the varnas are completely demolished and not recognized at all. The jat and path is acknowledged that these are the realities, but they're confronted by saying we must take care of the most underprivileged. Thank you. Um, yes. I think that will help us situate ourselves when we move to Surinder Singh and the historical context or the historical milieu in which Gyani Dit Singh uh, exists. So um, Surinder Singh, if you could uh, elaborate a little on the historical impetuses and the reasons um, for the creation and existence of reform movements. So the late 19th, early, early 20th, the historical milieu um, the historical and political milieu surrounding uh, Ravi Dasi's, Glob Dasi's movements, such as the Arya Samaj and the Singh Sabha uh, movement, what were the historical reasons and the, cre uh, yeah, the impetuses for the creation um, and existence of these movements? Yeah, I think uh, this again helps us to uh, contextualize, I think, uh, uh, the point that has been made about uh, theological position of Sikhism on, on the subject is also something which perhaps uh, 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 at some level we need to take it seriously. Uh, and we also need to recognize that uh, uh, when we are talking about society, when we are talking about economy, when we are talking about politics, uh, they are not reducible to theology or to religion. Uh, but that is very, very important. I mean, ideology or religion, that plays a very important role in producing legitimacy of structures, but I think history also is shaped by other forces. And I think we must recognize that if uh, caste exists among the Sikhs today, and the form in which it exists today, it cannot be solely comprehended uh, by looking at Bani or, or, or Sikh tradition. I think we also need to historicize uh, the idea of Sikh tradition and the manner in which it has, it has come to be. And I think, uh, again, uh, the contemporary Sikh tradition needs to be located in the way it was at some level reshaped during the colonial, British colonial period, 
and also its interaction with the nationalist movement because uh, Punjab, where most of the Sikhs have historically been, uh, is a fractured land. I mean, many of the, many of the Sikhs lived in another side of Punjab, which is now in Pakistan. They had to migrate to Indian side of Punjab. And we know after that also, uh, Punjab was redivided into Punjabi Suba, the larger Punjab, which was kind of still a quote-unquote Hindu majority. And these identities being given to Punjabis as, as Hindus and Sikhs itself is a kind of historical fact. Many of the so-called Hindus would actually be practicing Sikhs even today, what we call as, as Sajdari Sikhs. But I think there is a context in which social reform movements begin, and they begin in context of uh, what the Britishers were doing in India and how Hinduism was being invented in, in a very specific way. Not that, again, like caste Hinduism also existed, uh, some people would say, from the times of Rigveda. And there are kind of historical facts, at least from 15th, 16th century, the word Hindu uh, begins to be used locally. Even Nanak uses the word Hindu, Musliman. So it's very interesting, but both these words, Hinduism as well as caste, are not word of Indian origin. And they are both like, you know, seen as very foundational categories for India. Hinduism itself is not, not an Indian word. Uh, as, as you were talking about deconstruction, I think uh, there's a lot of literature on, on the way Hinduism has come to be what we understand it today. And I think that's where, again, colonial rule becomes very, very critical moment historically. And within colonial rule, reform movements become very, critically, very critical when, when Hinduism begins to see itself as a separate religion comparable to Christianity. Our notion of religiosity or faith Historical was very different from 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 uh, um, what are called as um, uh, religion like Islam and, and 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 Christianity or Judaism. They were very different kinds of religious communities. And South Asia has had a very different kind of they were called as semantic religions. We were very loose kind of uh, systems where there would be many sects, many communities will practice religion differently. Even in context of caste, for example, even today the ritual system of a particular Dalit community would be very different. For example, if you talk as uh, the Valmikis or, or the Mazbi Sikhs, if you look at their generic category uh, in Haryana or in, in Rajasthan or Gujarat, they're very different from the, the Patels of Gujarat or, say, Jats of Haryana. So every caste has had, they still have very different kinds of rituals. So to think of Hinduism as a religion itself is a very kind of interesting sociological and historical question. So when does it become a, become a religion? And this is very important to understand what we are talking about, this thing. Uh, and this becomes only in the 19th century when you have reform movements where people are beginning to see themselves as somehow being inadequate. And this sense of inadequacy comes among those who are educated in the Western kind of uh, uh, schools and colleges. And they begin to see themselves inadequate because they are different from Christianity and the Britishers tried to tell them that you are incapable of any kind of rational choice or you don't your religion has has customs like sati and child marriage which was true and not that it was not true there were many uh, uh, problems with, with with the local communities but they were community specific and the sati was practiced but it was practiced only by the by the by the privilege uh, poor people had no choice of practicing sati because the women were required if the man dies women had to bring up children. So there are all kinds of issues issues there as well. And similarly, uh, caste also becomes an issue. Status of women becomes a big issue. 
so that is the time when you have in some sense an articulation of new kind of i was using the word demographic hinduism which gandhi also is very kind of you know proactively pursuing when he was trying to sign pune pact with ambedkar and giving them representation he was primarily concerned about numbers scheduled castes as we call them untouchables uh, they were not allowed to enter hindu temples how would they become hindus but they were being recruited as hindus because hinduism wanted numbers in relation to islam so it is in this context that you have this reformers coming into punjab and trying to at some level because also punjab was a state where where islam was very influential i mean you look at the pre 47 punjab uh, muslims were around 51% of the total population uh, hindus were around uh, 30 35% uh, of the total population and rest were sikhs so this is a region where you know at some level already because of the british influence because of the way hinduism was evolving they need to they they thought that they need to kind of you know protect or promote hinduism and that's where uh, arya samaj comes in uh, with 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 the swami dayanand and though dayanand was from gujarat and he receives very good uh, what i want to say reception from the punjabi quote unquote hindu elite and they see that this is a good way of claiming our own whatever distinctive superiority by going back to vedas and how great we are so there was obviously problem of confidence and that is that is when punjab begins to see churning right and these are the people who are also saying that we need to purify everyone else who has gone away from hinduism and bring them back including the sikhs and this is where this conflict starts and the sikhs begin to then also start their own reform movement and one of the first thing that they need to assert is that we are not hindus right what does that mean that means they were earlier considered as hindus or there were sikhs who were seeing themselves as hindus while well, actual reality was different if you were to look at nanak panthis or those who were there were lots of people who would not wear turban and they would have hindu names but they were they were sikhs in 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 the ritual practices in terms of terms of their you know there were not too many big temples in in punjab uh, everybody went to deras and gurudwaras and these were the religious sites or or sufi dargahs and stuff like that so islam was well developed religion but sikhism and hinduism and sufism they were kind of uh, loosely kind of when hinduism begins to take this kind of conservative very strong position that is the time when a sikh reform movement also begins to emerge and that is when the sikhs begin to make this statement that we are not hindus and one of the first thing they need to do is or they needed to do is by saying that we as 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 harinder singh ji just said that one of the primary feature of hinduism as the colonial ruler had rulers had already kind of popularized was the practice of caste and that is what distinguished us from hindus in everyday life apart from our theology that we don't practice caste since we don't practice caste therefore we are not hindus so it some level caste became the defining feature of whether you are a hindu or not a hindu but again as i was saying earlier ideologies religions theologies are very important but they're only one aspect of everyday life everyday life of punjabis hindus muslims sikhs was very similar right if you go to a punjabi village either in lalpur or in amritsar or in uh, patiala you would find village society divided extremely on caste lines very clearly on caste line land belonged to jats and these jats could be sikh jats these could be hindu jats and these could be muslim jats and there would be kammis who would be who are now called as dalits who would work for jats and britishers had made policies under which 
Dalits were not allowed to even buy land, Land Indignation Act of 1901. So the scheduled castes of Punjab even today are among the most landless people. So these are the people who were at some level bonded servants and kammis or sometimes tenants of the land-owning jats. And again, you know, there's a whole history of how jats emerge as the dominant community in this region. Sikhism also played its own role, but historically this region had evolved very differently. There were also Rajput landlords, but Rajput landlords at some level did not become very influential. And there were other communities, for example, Ramgadiyas, as we call them, Darkhans, and other kinds of, you know, middling level castes. So Punjabi social structure did not change radically with Sikh philosophy. Religious sites also changed, but again, there were kind of fluctuations. Many people say that Ranjit Singh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh, patronized Hindu uh, kind of uh, traditions. And there are deras in, for example, in Pathankot district, which were patronized by, by, by Ranjit Singh and the whole land were given to those. These are version of Hindu deras. They're not, they're not Sikh deras. So Brahminism or Brahminical culture kept coming into Sikhism, into Punjab in many different ways. So there was very complicated ways, but in the late 19th century, Punjab was completely divided on caste lines. Early 20th century, Punjab was completely divided on caste lines. And that's when these reformers began to also talk about caste. And that's how, uh, uh, you know, Dip Singh also comes in that picture because he's growing up in an Arya Samaji family, lives there from there, and then joins uh, joins the the the... the, the uh, uh, Singh Sabha movement from Amritsar, which is also talking about caste, but Dip Singh, even though he was himself from what we would call now as a Dalit caste, he was he was a very learned person, but he was also being treated as Dalit. He was treated as untouchable by the upper caste Sikh reformers. So they had lots of contradictions of their own. Even when they were talking about reform, they were talking about caste question. They were themselves practicing caste-based divisions. They were they were they were practicing untouchability even in relation to somebody like Dip Singh, even in Gurudwaras, even in kind of, you know, uh, 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 meetings when they were talking about reforming Sikhism. Thank you. I think that perfectly moves us into our next question. Um, and please either turn the Singh or turn the Singh, uh, feel free to interrupt with any um, additions that you'd like to make. Um, but so yes, moving into, so we have the historical, the political, moving into the cultural milieu of Gyani Ditsing. Uh, perhaps we could spend some time discussing his journey, his life and legacy, and how it's pertinent to this conversation around caste that we're having. Um, Harinder Singh? Sure. Um, I think one of the things uh, we must acknowledge, uh, what uh, Professor Jyotka was saying, is yes, history is extremely important. You know, this is why sociology and anthropologists are trying to help us figure those things out and navigate us through the complexities of what we are studying, we think what happened. But at the same time, in Sikhi, I think this is something we need to understand a little bit better. That even today, or whether it was 100 years ago, 200 years ago, going back to the Guru period, that there is one agreement all Sikhs have had, which is Guru Granth Sahib. So Guru Granth Sahib is not just a scripture. I think this is a very sort of a Western way to look at it. And it is not either Veda or a Shastra, which is an Indic way to look at it. You know, it actually is like a manifesto. It actually is like a charter. This is why it is free from mythological hazes. And this is why it's free from the law books. So all those comparisons which we do of Guru Granth Sahib, 
uh, when we treat it like either scripture, either law book, actually are not accurate. What Guru Granth Sahib is, uh, is actually what I'm calling a charter, what I'm calling a manifesto, which I also identify what institution development Guru period did and the post-Guru period, whatever the Sikhs practice in Punjab, it was based on this constitution. So it was a governing document, if I may call it that. So in that governing document, when we do see certain positions being taken, which is what Gyanik Gritt Singh also got introduced to, and let me talk about him, that it is not just the religiosity of these people, it is their framework from which they operated. So in the case of Gyanik Gritt Singh, you know, the interesting thing is tomorrow is his death anniversary, so we are having this webinar. And I just want to give a little bit of the breadth of his I don't know if he appreciate what all he did actually. You know, he was a scholar, he was a poet, he was a journalist, a reformer, he edited, he debated. Just think about that. And he did all of this while he died at the age of 47 or 48 year, years old. So you have an individual who is born in a post-annexed Punjab when there is a massive conversion movement going on. And in, in that reality, when there are already people where the population of six, for example, even from a census angle, you know, is reduced to 90%, you know, to 10%. It's in that environment in 1853, this man is born and he is born to, um, uh, his dad was actually known as Baba Devan Singh because he was in his own right, a known individual who was a Gulab Dasi, one of the, uh, the movements in Punjab at the time. So he actually, Gyani Dit Singh was not Gyani Dit Singh from day one. He was actually Ditta Ram. And Ditta Ram is growing up in a household where his dad is quite well known, who is from the Gulab Dasi sect. And he actually becomes a preacher of Gulab Dasis. So he's getting trained. He's getting trained in language of the time, the folk culture of the time, what we'll call indigenous or tribal religions, as well as this uh, onslaught of British and other which has brought in their forms of learnings and identities and questioning of things and understanding of things. It's in this environment that he actually grows up. At some point, um, he comes across Dayanand Saraswati and he's quite impressed by it because he's a man who brings a reformist movement, uh, Arya Samaj movement to Punjab. Uh, he puts out a book called Satyarth Prakash and from there, there is a framework created to counter or redefine Hinduism as well. So uh, Dittaram at that time, who goes from being a Gulab Dasi preacher actually, ends up being a supporter and a proponent of Arya Samaj. Now, <laughs> when he's becoming a proponent of Arya Samaj, what is going on? This is the time now we're already into 1870s and 1880s and publications are coming out. Before this, he has already published a couple of books and I can get into that a little bit. What I'm trying to say is he is living through these environments. He's developing understandings. And in those understandings, eventually he enters uh, uh, the Singh Sabha movement when he comes across the Sikh understanding of these things. And this is where that Varan and Jat become very important. And I'll get into the, the different Singh Sabhas and why he ended up with the Lahore Singh Sabha because Amrit Sarvan actually did practice the not as much the Varna part, but the Jat part, superiority complexes and the classifications of these. Anyway, what Gyani did sing, what we might not know is, and I want to create that picture of him a little bit, that he knew Braj, he knew Arabic, Farsi, Hindi, Urdu, English, and Punjabi. 
think that for a second. So he's a linguist. He ends up becoming the first Punjabi professor in the world, which means he had that level of knowledge. He is a leader of the Singh Sabha movement. He's also the first one to get a Gyanni degree. That's why he's called Gyanni Ditsingh. Gyanni used to be a degree, not like today, where we are calling anyone who's working at a Gurdwara as a Gyanni. So he's well-versed into the methodologies which are being introduced, both indigenous form as well as the Western form of it. Then he's having three debates with the leader of the Arya Samaj. And in his own words, in his own Punjabi writing, he actually says how he defeated the Anand Sarsoti in those. He is founding the Khalsa College of Amritsar. He is the father of Indian Punjabi journalism, if you ask me, because he was the editor of Khalsa Akbar from Lahore for five years. And he kept fighting for Sikh sovereignty until his death. And in this span of 47 to 48 years, he has written 72 books or booklets. So if we just think about this is the man we are dealing with, there are going to be complexities of caste dynamics when we talk about him, but this is his journey. In his journey as a Dittaram, he actually starts out in a Punjabi folk literature, you know, where he wrote Shirin Farad first in 1872, and then he wrote Abla Nind in 1876. So it's very interesting what he is writing first. And then he gets into the reformist ideas of Arya Samaj, and then he gets into the Sikh ideas. And I want to actually quote one thing. Uh, he wrote an editorial about the caste in the society, which is what we are discussing. And so I'll pinpoint to that. This was in the Khalsa Akbar dated July 15, 1898. And this is what he wrote. He says, an, illit an illiterate man who calls his caste Brahman is addressed at Panditji. But if a man of another Varan, however well-versed in Shastras, is never seen as a Pandit. But people are bothered by the question that a Vash or a Shudar does not have the right to hear the Veda. He made it very real. He confronted this, what we call the privilege issues of the caste from ideology to the practice. And he wrote about it, he debated about it. And while he's doing all these things, uh, he is dealing with the conflicts within him and he's dealing with the conflicts even within the Singh Sabha with this. So for example, you know, there was uh, uh, Kanya Mahavidyala was set up by uh, Takat Singh, he's invited to speak there. And the whole society of Firozpur does not, and this is, I think, an incident in 1893, where the local Singh Sabha refused to share a meal with him. Remember in Sikhi, it was Sangat and Pangat. This was to eliminate the Jat path, including the untouchability idea, as well as the stratification of Jat. He's talking about it. Singh Sabha is acknowledging, but this Singh Sabha does not want to have a meal with him. But what we need to also mention is uh, Pai Takat Singh invites him to his house to have a meal with him. So because Singh Sabha was also not a monolith, Singh Sabha did not believe in the Varna idea, but there were Singh Sabhas who believed and practiced this Jat idea. And he belonged to that school of thought of Singh Sabha, the Lahore Singh Sabha, where they did not practice this idea of Jat path. Now, something else which I want to mention here is, uh, that he actually is going, when he's going through his own journey, and we have seen this in our lives as well, you know, when the leader of the Gulab Das, he, Sant Gulab Das dies in 1873, it's probably after that he sees the dwindling of that movement, he sees Arya Samajis coming in, and he, he gets attached to that because Arya Samajis are a reformist movement. And he works with them until probably around 1888 is what they say, and this is when he sees, okay, that the people like Gurmukh Singh, 
are really championing this in Punjab in a way which makes much more sense, which is, so what does Gyani Dit Singh do? He actually went after condemning the Sanatani beliefs. This is very important because Sanatan belief is coming back into six again. And Gyani Dit Singh, after studying these things, he joins the Lahore group of Singh Sabhas who were condemning Sanatani beliefs, which the Amritsaris practiced. And then he writes out it in a very different styles. He writes plays, he writes things where he's making fun of things. He's also being sarcastic. He wrote something called Sopan Natak, which is a dream drama, you know, which published in the Khalsa Akbar for a while. Uh, he was actually the outcast, even within, when he's fighting the anti-caste, even among the Singh Sabhas as well. Uh, he had, uh, Gulab Dasis didn't like him at the time either. They actually filed a lawsuit against him that he's declaring himself a guru. He maintained his good relationship with them and he continued and he dealt with the, uh, the lawsuits and things of that nature. What I'm trying to get at is that Gyani Dit Singh life of this 48 years or so, he actually is quite aware of what is happening in Punjab. He's quite aware of what is happening in the larger South Asia, which uh, at the time just India. He's quite aware of, because he writes about it, what the Christian missionaries are up to, what the um, uh, Muslim movements are up to, uh, visa basics. He's quite aware of what Arya Samajis are up to. And when he likes an element of them, he joins them. But eventually he settles down in the Sikh house where he joined the Lahore Singh Sabha. And he wrote vehemently about all these things. You know, in his, uh, I had the... I haven't read all of his books and booklets, but I have read at least 10 of them. And I want to mention Durga Prabodh as being one of them. Because Durga Prabodh, he takes on the challenge of that how, when Guru Gobind Singh is being reduced to this a worshiper of Devi, and he critiques that vehemently and shows that this is not the case. Then he goes into the internal criticism of the community, where he wrote something called Drapok Singh and Dalair Singh. Uh, uh, he, he wrote another writing where, which was called Nakli Sikh Prabodh. And I'm going to cite that and then I'll take a pause. In Nakli Prabodh Singh, he wrote a very interesting line, which I want to read up, where he says, uh, and he's essentially saying these are the fake Sikhs, what we will call in today's vocabulary, right? He says, Guru Granth kuch kahat hai, yeh kahen kuch aur. He says, Guru Granth Sahib says something else, but these guys are saying something else. Kaho ajah hai khalsa. He says, this is not the way we will become of the gurus. If you wish to free yourself, then you got to follow the lifestyle which the guru has instituted, the 10th guru has instituted, and get rid of all, abandon all other thoughts. He wrote this in a Nakli Sikh Prabodh, which was to create awareness on the fake Sikhs in 1893. So what he was doing, in my opinion, is he took the ideas of Guru Granth Sahib, he looked at in his cultural realities, what the politics, the culture, the religion, the education movements coming together, and then addressing those in a way which people at large understood what elite issues were and where to have certain alliances with the elites of the Sikhs, including the Amritsar Singh Sabha, yet not being collaborators with them and fighting vehemently this caste structure, what we now call in terms of privileges. Oh, yes, sir, and this thing. Yeah, I think uh, it's a very important point uh, which we need to kind of foreground. I completely agree with uh, Harinder Singh Ji. And I think the first point that he made uh, needs to be revisited. You know, I think uh, not only Sikhism uh, rejects castes, denies untouchability, Brahminism, etc., etc. 
Sikhism is also one of the religion which <coughs> institutionalizes practices which are anti-caste. Langar, Sangat, these would have been really revolutionary radical practices at that time. But despite that, again, if we have death Singh, we need to recognize that society does not structure itself around a religious philosophy. It gets influenced by it, but then we still have caste. And if that was the case, then we would not be really talking about uh, uh, caste today uh, on this platform. And I think there's another point that, that we need to make here. Uh, I'm really very, very happy that you are talking about this thing. Nobody is talking about this thing in Punjab. Tell me in the present Punjab, in the present Sikhi, how many institutions are there on the name of this thing? This thing is completely forgotten. Punjab is ruled by Jat Sikhs. And before that, you had Khatris, they are the ones, the Arodas, they are the ones who were Punjabi elite. Dit Singh was completely, his memory has been more or less being erased from the mainstream Punjabi Sikh uh, tradition. It doesn't exist. And I think it's very good thing that you're doing, that you're bringing him back. And we need to read this. How many textbooks in Punjabi teach about Dit Singh and his own struggle? The fact that he was himself treated as untouchable, untouchable. Jat, Varan doesn't really matter. That is the core of caste. The core of caste is to exclude people, dehumanize them, treat them as untouchable. You know, whether you are Brahmin or anyone else, how does it matter to, to the untouchable? The untouchable is still treated as an untouchable, whether she is treated by, by a Brahmin or by a Jat or by a Khatri or by a, by a Rajput, it doesn't really matter. I think at some level, the core of caste stayed in, in much weaker form. I would still say that Punjab in the late 19th century also was very different from from say Kerala, where you know lower caste women were not even allowed to wear upper clothes, right? Or in some other parts in Maharashtra, where Dalits could not walk through the road without carrying a kind of broom on their back, which they would have to use to sweep their shadows. So I think Punjab was different, but still, even today, caste exists. And I think we need to foreground that empirical fact that we are willing to confront and talk about it. And I think that's the value of this, this discussion that we are having today. Let's not try to kind of say that, yes, because these practices were introduced by Sikhism, therefore, Sikh society has nothing to do with Varna, nothing to do with caste. Varna, Jati, caste, these words really are very, very important. We should, we should, we should kind of probe them. But the practices of, of treating human beings as, 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 as untouchable dehumanizes them. I think that is the most important central element of caste is practice of untouchability. We can be different. You know, all the gurus were, were Khatris. Vedis, Bhallas, and Sodis, they married within them. That doesn't mean that, 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 that they believed in caste system. They also had very important uh, uh, partners who, who, I mean, in, in Guru Granth also, they included Bani of Dalits. They included uh, Bani of very diverse kind of people. But they were also different. I mean, difference is all right. But the moment you exclude people, treat them as, as untouchable, that is where I think the practice of caste becomes objectionable and it should be objectionable because it violates all notions of human dignity and human rights and that is the present context in which we need to talk about caste but otherwise i have absolutely no disagreement with him so one should recognize it yes sikhism did a lot but i think we also have our responsibility to do more than that so that you know we can't just kind of attribute everything to to our theology if it exists that means weakness is weakness is with us so I, I do want to respond to that. I wasn't reducing it to it. I actually am saying I'm, I'm acknowledging it. Even when we look at Guru Nanak Sahib, and, and let's actually, this is the crux of it. In fact, in the time of the Guru period itself, they are Sodis, they are Bedis, they are Bhavas, and they are Pallas. These four names are written 
within Guru Granth Sahib as well as secondary text literature. So there's acknowledgement that which classification they are coming from. Let's use that for our purposes. They acknowledge the privilege of the Khatris at the time. But Guru Nanak is addressing it. There were people who did not agree with the system at the time. When he chose to go stay with, uh, I was just, uh, I've been to that Gurdwara so many times, now in the Pakistan side of Punjab, when he refuses to eat the roti of Malakpa, go. So, you know, that's a privileged class. And how did the Jat become the rulers? We have to also address it. You know, the Juts became rulers, but they were, they were not the landowners in Punjab. Why was Dit Singh not treated as Lalo Bhagat? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming. Yeah. I'll come to it. What I'm saying is people yeah. who live in privilege, they have to take this stand. And underprivileged need partners, which, which is what we can discuss into. But historically, I don't want to undermine what the Sikh movement did, which was founded in not the idea of religion. It was actually founded in that we have a blueprint for the society. We are going to make Kartarpurs and the Begampuras a reality and not a utopian idea. And that's what gurus did. And in that utopian idea, the underprivileged, even when, for example, uh, Bulla says, wade raje ki te, he's referring to the Jats. They're the ones who had no aristocracy, who had no right to rule the lands in Punjab. The empowerment of the gurus was that they became the rulers in Punjab. Now, 100 years later, Maharaja Ranjit Singh period, they became something else. And we are still carrying that forward. And which is what you are referring to, how Gandhi Dit Singh was treated. My point is, we must acknowledge even in Guru period, not everyone joined the Sikh movement, but the Sikh movement and the Sikh revolution was very clear that this is what we believe in. And you look for partners in crime from all classifications. So while Pai Jeevan Singh and Rangarete Guru Ke Bete, you know, all these things we are carrying, they were the partners gurus brought in this caravan. And if we do not have those partnerships, Gyani Ditsing is that. He worked with to create those partnerships. He found some partners. Others did, did not want to deal with it because they had too much of their past, uh, the caste pride. In fact, you know, it might not be, uh, even Pash has said this, right? He says, Even Guru Nanak said this. At the time of Guru Nanak, his own clan did not accept, you know, what he was doing. At the time of Guru Arjan, his clan did not accept what he was doing. And so this happens. But within this reality, the success of Gyani Dit Singh is that while he's been treating as untouchable by the very six because they are part of a particular privileged structures, his inspiration is he recognizes and he writes. So what can I say to them? In fact, let me, I'm going to read a passage for that, if I can take 30 seconds. He actually writes this, that what changed him. And this is very important from Sikh angle, because he said, when I became a Khalsa, it became very different for me. And this is when he started talking about Nakli Sikh. So Khalsa, not just a number of ceremony, Khalsa in the outlook as well. Khalsa in the way you address things. And he writes, he says, Kaun Sikh hunde ho pai, main arora nai. To put it simply in English, it becomes, you know, he's saying, hey man, oh brother, what is your caste? I am of the clan of Nama. I am a Chima brotherhood. But 
which milk were you drinking? Are you the six who are only juts? Or which house were you born in? Because I'm a water supplier. He then lists all these goats, which is where the reality comes in. You know, the, the last names we call it today, this is where the practice is. Aroras, Chimbas, Jats, Mehras, Aluwalias, Prakhans, Brahmans, Khatris, Sahanis, Rangretas, Ravidasis, Sunyaras, Rahatiyas, Lobanas, Pallas, Trayans, and Vedis. He lists all of them. And he says, look, you can either focus on your last names or Goth, which is what creates Biradri, which is what gets into the Jad, and which eventually at some point connects to the Varnas. He says, you can either focus on those or you can focus on the ideas of Mansur. He writes this. Or you can focus on, this is where he globalizes this. Or you can focus on the ideas of Shamze Tabriz. Or you can focus on the ideas of Rumi. He says, if you focus on those ideas, then you will see this is what Khalsa is doing. This is what Sikhs are doing in the reality of Punjab to give rights to the underprivileged. The people who had no right to wear arm or to even sing classical music, this is what the Sikh movement did. And I'm acknowledging this, and this is why I'm addressing this vehemently, even at the cost of collaborators among six who are not allowing it. Thank you. Thank you to the both of you. Uh, before we move on to audience questions, um, I'd like to just bring it to the contemporary context. Um, so to Svendar Singh Jodka, uh, moving to yourself and situating ourselves now in the, oh, sorry, um, grappling with the understandings of um, contemporary caste in Punjab. I'll direct uh, this question to you. I know in one of your pieces, you argue that caste as an ideology is nearly dead uh, in contemporary Punjab, but it survives and thrives as a source of identity. So could you unpack a little um, <clears throat> this argument um, and tell us this difference between ideology and identity? Thank you for asking this question. Uh, actually, my work is mostly on contemporary Punjab and I see caste everywhere. Uh, and uh, it's not like ideology is completely gone, but when you talk about what we were talking about at some level, the ideology of Varana, which translates into, into recognition, even by the untouchables, that what they are doing is their karma. And I think that also was there to some extent in Punjab. It wasn't absent until 1970s, I would say. Uh, there are fluctuations. Of course, uh, Guru's period was very different and their intentions were very different and they were very very successful in many ways in building a community which was of a very different kind even when uh, missiles period came uh, when when uh, sikhs were fighting for for state power before ranjit singh's regime uh, there were missiles of uh, what we would call as as dalits today right so they were also fighting along with that then what happened we don't really know that history has also not been worked on i think we need to focus on that history, what happened to those missile traditions. There are all kinds of rumors. Some people say that all of them were actually assassinated, but there were, there were missiles of uh, must be Sikhs and all kinds of people were also fighting those wars. So I think these achievements at some level were lost uh, by the region, by the Sikh community. And in, in, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, that kind of Brahminism, if you want to call it, it's not Brahminism because Brahmin is absent, priesthood is absent in Sikhism. It is not in that sense Brahminism, but the question of, of avoidance, of untouchability, of hierarchy, hierarchically treating people, you know, superior most, followed by them, followed by them. For example, even Ramgadiyas were treated very badly in, in villages of Punjab. And then that's when they began to, began to uh, go abroad and then they acquired a sense of prosperity and, and sense of confidence. And then they were also a, kind of taken out of the list of, of backward classes or backward castes as Punjab used to have earlier. 
So there are mobility patterns. In 1920s, we have a very strong uh, Dalit movement in, in, in the Dwaba region of Punjab, which was led by a person called Manguram, uh, later on Kashiram, for example, who actually we came from a Ravidasi or Ramdasi, a Sikh family, uh, even though his name is Kashiram. Lots of Dalit Sikhs, uh, even though they wear turban and they have long beard, uh, they would have so-called Hindu names, right? So Kashiram also came from a Sikh family, and his uh, ex experience of caste is very different from from his help fellow Dalits in other parts of India, and he himself talks about it. So uh, in 1920s, you have Adharam movement which is mobilizing the chamars of, of Dwaba. So these people at some level produce a kind of very self-confident community, which says we are not neither Hindus nor, 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 nor Sikhs nor Muslims. We should be listed as a separate religion. And they are successful in doing that. You know, they, they, they are listed, but later on Indian state kind of because of reservation uh, uh, issue. So, but even after that, untouchability was very strongly practiced and some idea of sense of superiority so pride of one's, one's caste. But pride also implied, for example, dominant caste in the village would have access to Dalit women. Dalit women would be raped and that would not be reported in the police. There would be a lot of violence in villages against Dalits and Dalits will not really have much to say. But I think sometime, sometime in the 70s, things began to change. What we were talking about ideologically, Dalits acquired a sense of confidence and because of mechanization, green revolution, uh, Jats did not need Dalits any longer for labor and Dalits very self-consciously distanced themselves from the local agrarian economy. So they acquired a kind of sense of autonomy. But even in the late 90s, uh, when I did my first survey of caste in Punjab and then I went back again, uh, uh, remnants of it was there, right? But more importantly, what I was talking about, the materiality of caste, which is not, you can't, you can't separate it from ideology and identity. The materiality of caste is the real inequalities, right? If you were to go to the village of, 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 of uh, Malwa even today, there would be Dalits who are really living in poor background. They would all be staying away from the village, right? Lembe Passe, the side of the village where the sun sets. Even in urban areas, there are, there are Dalit clusters. In some areas in Dwaba region, the Chitti Road Belt, they have experienced significant mobility. They have global uh, networks. But otherwise, if you go to go to Dwaba region, even in urban areas, Dalits would be living in slums. And there are very strong caste networks politically. For example, uh, there has not been any chief of Punjab who is a Dalit. Those Dalits who have been part of either the Congress party or the Akali Dal, they complain about not being treated equally because they are Dalits, right? And so most of the chief ministers, almost all the chief ministers, except for uh, Gani uh, Zail Singh, They've all been from, from landed Jat Singh families, not just any other Jat. They're all big landlords, whether it is Captain Abrindal Singh or, or Badal family or anyone else, Darbara Singh. They all come from Malwa region and they have large tracts of land. So the power structure at the state level continues to be with the Jats. And not only at the state level, but because they have very strong hold over the state machinery, over the bureaucratic networks, that also helps them keep their power intact at the village level. Punjab has not seen a Dalit revolution like UP has seen. Punjab has 32% population listed as scheduled caste. Not all of them are Dalits, actually. I would say 25 to 28% actually come from ex-untouchable castes. Rest of them have been able to push their way into the list. But they have not really been able to come acquire some kind of substantive power 
partly because they are divided across communities like any other caste groups are divided so it's not a dead question it is still a living question but its form has changed because people want they assert as you rightly said ideologically they don't see themselves that to be deserving that status which was not the case until 1960s they were they were they reconciled to their position now they assert so the chamars come back out in in jalandhar and they would talk about the the pride of being chamar put chamara de or they have new kind of ambedkarite movements they write their own music their own uh, they sing their own music but that is identity politics but identity politics does not erase caste identity politics only further divides now there would be differences between say chamars and and valmikis or mazbisiks and among them also there would be further differences duabiya chamars and adharmis versus ramdasiya sikhs so there are all kinds of uh, fragmentations that identity politics brings in and they also then obviously create uh, schism conflicts have, have declined in in recent past but the but the tensions remain like we had the case in 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 vienna some time back that was that was some time back but those kinds of conflicts are not rare they can still happen but it's not like you can take dalits for granted dalits are very resourceful uh, they also have their own uh, leadership they have their own political elite they have global resources in diaspora so they they act as 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 a single community but that action is largely around a single community not as dalits but it would be adharmis or the chamars or the the valmikis or the mazbi sikhs so the community level uh, struggles are much more than than at the level of you know trying to uh, bring people together yeah cutting into our question time but i think a lot of our questions are being answered um so before we get into those that have not been addressed uh uh her and saying moving to yourself and situating ourselves now in the diaspora uh i know you're well aware of the controversies around ethnic coding laws in the uk census and the situation uh around caste segregated segregated gurdwaras in canada and beyond um as some of the ways in which caste plays out in these li- large diasporas um so why are there gurdwaras for certain castes and what what is the driving force and consequence um behind wanting uh, to define as an ethnicity in the census um how has caste as we've discussed in this hour um an already complex system um how has it been transported uh, or transplanted into the diaspora sure um and i'm going to continue in the vein of what professor jodhka was saying and i completely agree with him on the assessment of how the the external manifestation of the caste dynamics might be changing but the interiors of it remain the same that we have not really solved it structurally as we will say you know when we are talking about blm in america right now uh, it's a similar things you know the movements are coming but the structural problems exist so even when a particular subgroup of the mool nivasi community which is i prefer to use instead of dalit uh, achieves certain success they might assert their superiority complex now instead of inferiority complex so how is all this playing out in diaspora well you know we are importing yesterday i tweeted after reading a report on cnn uh, that in america now finally you can deny because people have been denying there are caste dynamics here uh, there are lawsuits now including from cisco that how people of the privileged caste are practicing this at work in america um, so look one of the things you have to understand is this is all being exported uh, from india or south asia all the way Uh, to the countries we live in wherever the diasporas of south asia are as well as six 
So one thing we need to understand is what is being exported here, right? So this is where I think the current demographic is very important and Professor Jyotka just touched upon it. You know, there is, a, there is no real data on this, but generally accepted view is if we talk within the Sikh community, we must understand the new structures, right? So one within the Sikh community, when it's interlinked very much with Punjab, when Sikh community, uh, Britannica writes that 60% are Jats. I don't know what their basis is, and they don't give any other distribution, but we'll say at least the simple majority is Jats. So let's understand how Jats are now comprising the larger block of the Sikh population. So you will see this is why the Jat versus other dynamics going on. Let's look into Punjab. Now Punjab in Indian government has not released their latest census reports. So this is about 20 year old, we can say. There it's very interesting. The new distribution looks more like a third of them belong to what in India they call OBCs and another third belong to roughly what, what they call scheduled caste or scheduled caste. For our purposes, these will be the most underprivileged. You know, what we have been talking about at the below even if part of them, so for example, uh, in OBCs, they include people who are Rajputs, people who are Kambods or Lavanas, uh, but in scheduled, scheduled caste, it includes what we now call Ravadasi or Ramdasi Sikh or Aad Armis or the Mazbi Sikhs. There, so 66% of the population is what we now will call underprivileged community. And then you have a third of a community in Punjab which we will call is unreserved in Indian systems, but we'll say privileged, which means in social mobility, they have made it, which includes Juts and the Sanis and the Khatris and the Aroras and things of that nature. So the new dynamics of caste, which is what you were asking, which are getting played out in Punjab politics, you heard, they're all from a particular Jut ruling class. So it's a ruling class, which has become the issue. Now, uh, uh, Ramgadiya community historically asserted this in the first way and they established their own Gurdwaras. Why? Because we did not treat them equally. The mainstream Sikh, which we'll say for now, is a Jat Sikh. It's oversimplification, but that's what it is. Or the Khatri Sikhs did not treat them equally. They did not consider them. They all could take Amrit. So it was not a religious discrimination, but there was not what we now get into this equality versus equity and sharing of the political spaces, right? The real power where the policymakers sit. They didn't have a seat on the table. In Gurdwaras, that's got imported within Punjab from there to now the diasporas. The Ravidasi community, as they asserted themselves, as a part of them declared themselves to be separate, but part remains even today, including in Burnaby, the largest Gurdwara, Ravidasi Gurdwara outside of India. Uh, they remain actually with Guru Granth Sahib. They chose not to go with the Dera Vallabh. So, what basically the reason we have separate Gurdwaras, the primary reason, people who are in the privileged position, they treated others as being second or third class citizens in the vocabulary of Guru Granth Sahib. You will not have stability. Kayam, Dayam, Sada, Patshai. Why wouldn't the stability exist? Because Som because you treat someone as a second class or a third class citizen. This is why they started their own Gurdwaras. Um, now we have to be very, sort of nuanced about the last piece of the question you asked. You know, this debate is going on in America, this is going on in Canada, but the most highest level it has showed up is in UK, where there are people who have taken position, six don't have a caste. There are people who have taken position that, well, yes, we don't ideologically, but we very much are part of this caste problem. And anyone who denies it or does not feel responsibility towards it, all you have to do is check out the matrimonials. And you will see 
very clearly you know the litmus test is when you are getting married or when your son or daughter is getting married and you will figure out how casteist you are that day <laughs> and i know people who work in a civil rights arena in america and they're celebrated lawyers and they chose not to marry as a second class american sikh a girl because their dad said she did not belong to the same caste so it is that must entrenched in their psyche it is a very real issue it actually is it crosses the what we have been calling the jaat varnas the gotras and the biradari this is very much a discriminatory practice today and uh, when we are trying to bring up in censuses in the codings we have to understand what the law of the land is about it is about protecting certain rights even if ideologically we do not agree with it we have to understand why it is needed to protect certain people's rights you know this is what in america they used to call affirmative action or in censuses if you don't record that then you will never get the fundings for it you will never get the recognition and acknowledgement and people will be denying it and not addressing it in a way which it needs to be addressed in the social structures of the societies we live in so this is very much a real thing uh it needs to be countered um at a at a personal level we can counter it i and i already said I, i'll actually share an anecdote here i grew up in kansas city partly after the age of 13 I remember going to a gurdwara in Kansas City where the president of the gurdwara actually said to me you know I didn't even know until then what a caste was you know he he told me what caste I was I'm like well if that's the case because I had read a little bit I said the gurus weren't jati that he's like then they might not be gurus just think about that for a second you know this idea and this is the time when I discovered the dictionary of castes and tribes in northwest frontier you know i'm like let me go learn about these 16000 uh, punjabi castes and subcastes you know and i had to learn from orientalist before i went into figuring out the indic systems of it it is very very real it is practiced all over the globe it is not practiced as a religious discrimination in most cases but it definitely is practiced uh, in terms of social discrimination as well as power sharing and when it comes to political discrimination definitely thank you for this um we are going to move into q and a um so the first question i will um throw it to sridharan chodka um to what extent is there a gap between the doctrinal practices of the sikh religion and the ruling socio political interests in punjab Um, it's a difficult question um, i mean uh, sikhism uh, the context is very different uh, i think we should kind of uh, even though um, a sikh who is a kind of strong believer would not want to historicize uh, uh, religious practices or religious uh, principles uh, but they are only guidelines you know religion gives us certain values but you need to translate those values into practices uh to shape your own context for example when when nanak was writing his bani or gurus were kind of writing their bani or kind of reforming people or mobilizing people we did not have nation states uh nation states with their own constitutions with their own kind of you know uh, uh, system of boundaries come up only in the 20th century globally i mean in the 19th century it starts in europe now nation state has become the most important a uh, social political structure we were talking about structure and i think that's where uh, we need to kind of negotiate how do we how, how successfully 
are we able to bring in those values into the way we structure our systems of governance our practices of everyday life and i feel we have been very unsuccessful there partly it has not been because of us partly it's because the way nation states have evolved in south asia they have been uh, mostly uh, at some level shaped by the colonial rule and it is not only the colonial rule it's also the western modernity which has then shaped our administrative system and western modernity tells us to be equal in a particular way and now that has not really uh, at some level uh, it doesn't uh, go well with our sikh values you know sikh values needed to sikh values are very modern values i would say the question of you know langar or pangat or you know building a community so there's a problem there you know this western modernity also is a very alienating process which in some sense preconditions is that you should individualize yourself every individual has to be a rational agent on his own it's mostly also gendered so i think that is where uh, i think our political elite has has completely surrendered to that colonial western notion of modernity and there was no sense of negotiation there and i think that's where we needed to kind of look at at some level not i i'm not a traditionalist but look at our own resources and then think of how how do we work out the idea of idea of equality how do we visualize the notion of citizenship not that we can we can have a kind of theological states i think that would create many problems because we have to be compatible globally and these are global practices within which you know uh, we are ambitious we are aspirants and there are larger market economy with which you should be able to at some level function you should be allowed to be mobile six are very mobile six have always had this one single value which really distinguishes historically six from many other communities of south asia that from nanak himself you have to ujjad jao you ujjad jao is a value like you should just go somewhere and right? that's why six are so active in diaspora ujjad jao means you don't need to stay stuck to a place that is not really your 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 destiny your destiny is to 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 roam around and 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 make the world so i think there were many things which could have been done but they have not been done so what we have are bureaucratic structures inherited from colonial rule our police man uh, our police manuals are still the same as written by the colonial rulers and they have implications and we have seen in 1980s when khalistan movement came up in punjab the way uh, it was it was dealt with by the state right and what happened after that so there is a very kind of brutal colonial practice of treating your own citizens as subjects and you can kind of you know so then all the power logic that works through those institutions is very different for example nanak or sikh gurus or or or, or guru granth the one value that it talks about is love so how do you operationalize home pr how do you operationalize that that value of love the manner in which it is understood in south asian context the manner in which it is understood by by sikhi and and sufism uh, we should have a modern translation of that love doesn't mean only romantic love that means how do we how do we live together loving each other but we are in a structure where even within families we don't have those values honestly and i think that is where we needed to kind of be a little more imaginative and creative where how do you negotiate with this modern processes which we have not done and many of the problems come from that we are so materialistic materialistic is a kind of strange word but we are all kind of you know the kind of wars that you have around land in in in, in rural punjab or in urban areas for on small properties families are destroyed there's no affection for among brothers so i think that is a serious moment of crisis 
so we can't give any values to our younger generation we don't really know how to relate to them because we have we have adopted to a particular view of modernity which is very alien we don't really relate to it i think that is something which we kind of need to look at a larger historical perspective and i think i would say if one word has to be used i think we have failed in many significant ways but at the same time the on the positive side sikh institutions compared to many other cultures and traditions are still very active very strong thriving and very kind of you know positively flourishing when this thing happened pandemic happened in in delhi i live in delhi i mean everyone was at some level taken aback by the way sikh community came forward in distributing langars to people who were on roads doctors who were not allowed to go home by their own families gurudwaras gave them shelters and this was all over the country and and you have this you know global uh, charity organizations which reach everywhere so i think these are the values of the community which are still very alive and i think we need to kind of look at them and learn from them and the kind of thing that sikh research institute is doing and i think sikhism is not a territorialized religion i think we should see ourselves as as de-territorialized global community that's why i think ujjar jao is not something which is a negative value for us and i think how do we think of a global imagination in which we can take take these values of 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 vand chakko te kirat karo those are very very important values and that's what is required in today's life where there is so much of greed and so much of inequality and these are values that can can take us to 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 23rd century or 22nd century with our younger generation feeling proud of us but also being human oh karinder singh if you'd like to add yeah i wanted to actually build on this idea of love and in fact i want to connect this with gyani dit singh and contemporary thing you know when gyani dit singh is i think he was practicing love because he was focused on the idea from guru granth sahib of equality an egalitarian society and he did not let the privileged who even acknowledge was a problem but their practice was a problem he did not allow them to bother him on his mission so this is love in practice you know like despite suffering humiliations for his caste in his personal life he still was able to combine because of ideas of love he found in guru granth sahib after going through the gulabdasi idea after going through the arya samaji idea he combined this idea uh in his person both as an agency of change as well as a vector of cultural practices i think this is very very important what professor jyotka just brought in and i want to say this is what gani this thing did this is what gurunanak's idea of uh, love was our idea of love is like today's hukum today you know when i read from darbar sahib amritsar it actually says that some are happy reading lies about the one or oneness and they are unaware but they are noisy and they are very argumentative this is where most of the world is we are not about चंबलि for multiple rapes eventually took on herself to fight the ruling class of the yadavs in that area but we have banta singh in punjab i mean he took up struggle justice because his daughter was raped and then he was dealt with because of the privileged class would not allow him to fight for justice and the gurunanak's idea of love is this which is what i quoted earlier where he said when you identify with those whose rights are being violated you will feel the grace of the divine 
So the love in Sikhi was Sangat and Pangat. If, if you take out just the Langar, it becomes a PR. You know, if the, if the, if the Pangat, the Langar is not understood to break these caste divisions, and which is, I think, Langar was a creative way which got institutionalized among Sikhs to fight the caste barriers as well. And this is a reminder which we need that, look, our work is cut out. Um, we, uh, we, need to, we need to get into even the word chamar, if I may use this because it has been used earlier today. You know, the effect of the love in Sikhi was that we stopped using that word because it was used in a derogatory manner, you see. And, the, and so what did we started saying? You know, the word Ravadasi became better, right? So the idea is the terms matter as well. Six don't use the word Dalit, you know, or they didn't used to. Now we are beginning to because we are going away from that value system which Mr. Jokha was talking about. And that value system in Gurmani is all about creating a, a society, you know, this Kartarpur and Begampura, which is outside of the caste structure which is outside of this semantic idea of exclusionism. And when you come out of those exclusivist ideas, we will be uh, creating the new Kartarpurs that Guru Nanak Sahib envisioned and he actually established. Thank you for providing, yes, another element of this conversation. Um, I think we have sufficiently answered the questions in the Q&A box. Um, and if there is any closing remarks, I'd love to uh, hear from Professor Jodka um, in the future of this conversation, the next steps uh, in addressing these disparities within our communities, uh, both in Punjab and abroad. Um, so for closing remarks, Surinder Singh, I will um, throw it to you. Yeah, I think uh, uh, if you look at, uh, it's not only among Sikhs, but overall uh, uh, in India, as well as globally, uh, uh, the tendency is to uh, at some level, uh, uh, be in denial mode that, you know, caste doesn't exist among Sikhs uh, because uh, Guru Nanak did not believe in caste system. We don't have Varna hierarchy. We don't have Zat Path and our scriptures are full of that, uh, which I think we should feel proud of and we should kind of foreground. But feeling proud uh, of them also uh, adds a responsibility to us. And that is to look at empirical ground reality. Uh, so empirically it exists and I think we need to recognize it and uh, all of us need to recognize it and we need to then expand our vision uh, in the present context. I think we need to go back to our text, but at the same time, uh, the present context is present context. The number of uh, communities that you have, we were talking about nation state, we were talking about globalization and the kind of possibilities that we have today, both ways, positively, negatively, in terms of drug, question of gender is very closely tied to question of caste because intermarriages, et cetera, that is at global level. So one needs to look at the complexities of caste question. It's not simply a question of hierarchy. It's also a question of, of gender and violence. It's also a question of uh, distribution and inequality. It's also a question of, of being open, being kind of you know accommodative uh, to everyone. For example, in diaspora, I, understand that there are problems that, you know, if young women want to marry outside their community, the Gurdwaras will not allow them to marry there. In some cases in Britain, I had heard about. So we need to put these questions on table as real questions of negotiating with the emerging world. And every community has to negotiate with the emerging world. 
if they do it imaginatively creatively they will survive as an identity otherwise younger generation next generation will move away and i think six are already doing that it's not like six are in a denial mode the fact that six research institute is organizing this but i think large section of uh, dominant sikh community denies this even if they don't deny they would put the burden on the victim they would tend to suggest that you know it's basically uh, dalits because in sgpc we have reservation for scheduled castes that's why caste survives it re reservation is required because if you have no reservation they would not even single a person from dalit communities will enter sgpc there were there were questions raised when 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 ragi nirmal singh died uh, four months back after because of covid and many people complained that he was treated badly uh, and he himself has written on it so caste is practiced within golden temple in some sense even today and i think we should bring in uh, that that question and that should have been talked about by the community much more than it has been if he is complaining about it if his family is complaining about it we need to take it seriously we can't just say that yeah they are just being you know fussy and and they don't really understand this was a different kind no there are issues and i think we need to recognize it and not put the burden and my final point is that caste is inequality caste is hierarchy caste is untouchability caste is humiliation caste is inhumanity and caste is what we were talking about love just the opposite of it caste is about contempt contempt of the other human being and how do we overcome that so it needs to be done done through our ideas through our thought but also in reality we need to struggle against inequalities of all kind right in 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 united states for example if the racial inequality exists um, caste inequality will also exist simultaneously because inequality is the practicing value even though united states constitution might say equality but the white privileges are very proud of themselves and it is also related to for example inequality among gender i think that's where i think we need to go back to nanak values is a notion of universality there is only oneness and we need to kind of translate this oneness into common humanity and that common humanity is what at some some level you know even uh, uh, contemporary world needs everywhere but we don't need to be sectarian about it. it doesn't mean that you have to become a sikh in order to become one world one means with diversity you are still one we are yes we are you are you are one human being whosoever you are and the sikhs have not been sectarian actually in, in their practices they have not they have not gone around and saying that you have to convert uh, to sikhism in order to understand nanak's message and i think those are things that we need to to kind of emphasize and we need to say these are our central values and those central values then also i think will strengthen the community at some level and thank you very much for having me on this platform wonderful to be conversating with you <laughs> harinder singh ji thank you yes thank you for thank you for joining us for this for this conversation i will now uh lastly for to harinder singh uh, there is also a conversation or a conception that's also occurring in the chat slash the q and a um one of the questions perhaps you could address is do you think the use of the word dalit which comes from a sense of victimhood goes against the concept of jardikala um sure i think uh, let me try to wrap that in no so in the context of jani dit singh i think you know they say history repeats itself and uh, i say they are right to large extent but it comes up with its own manifestations so 100 years later we have the new pujaris and the new castes who are also running the sikh institutions and this is upon us on how we work with the today's sgpc at the time was under the british 
or pre-British and now it is under the Indian system and they are completely changing the systems in Delhi as well as in Amritsar and it's very visible in last week as well. So how do we address this? And Gyani Ditsing come into this play, I think, very well. In fact, let me quote him. You know, he, he has a writing called uh, Mira Manoth, where he says, Vidya ki hai kami sab hor na duji paath, sache karam malin ehe avidya karvat. So this is his conclusion. He says the problem is lack of education and lack of awareness. And if we get into that, and this is why he wrote what he wrote. He says, just because you have a degree is my interpretation doesn't mean you are educated. The idea of these complex dynamics and then how do you take that to masses in a simplified form, which people understand. And this is what he went after. He says that the problem is of lack of awareness and lack of education. And he had fun with it. He, at the same time, he wrote things you know, like, I, I guess, uh, Professor Jodhka, you might enjoy this one. So he had a composition called Gugga Gapoda, where he says, Dekho murak desa sada, kikkur dubda janda, sappa kutteya biliya kava apne peer bananda. So he's having fun with it too. That, you know, you can't just create an ideology out of anything which you're seeing around. And he's making fun of in a satirical way that, look, you got to pay some attention to what makes sense. And in order to come to, to decipher what makes sense, you have to have certain level of knowledges. And in his case, in his journey of knowledges, he went through uh, his own journey of religions, you can say, his own journey of theologies. And eventually he settled on Sikhi and he found the partners, both in the privileged position and in the underprivileged positions, who saw to work towards the same project. They did not see eye to eye on everything but they did see I do on project, and this is how you work towards it. So while the word Dalit is something VT Rajshekhar might prefer, because that's his editor of Dalit Voice, because that's what he worked on to bring that consciousness. Uh, you know, when you're looking at BAMSEF, they preferred the word Mulnevasi. Regardless of which word you prefer, which word you can work with, the sick conception will be, let's work with those who are to address the underprivileged. And the word changes, the words, have a changing meaning, changing dynamics. Currently, uh, it might be to call somebody uh, a chuda chamar in Punjab is a cuss word as well as a derogatory word, as well as trying to put them in their place in a sense by saying you don't belong with us. So, you know, and, and I used to do this when I was in Punjab for a few years, people are trying to get me married and they will ask me, Harinder, tera, teri jaat ki hai ki? And when they were really pressure me, I'll say, like, nahi, nahi, eh, ho sakda. You know, so this idea of if you want to confront it, then identify with whoever in your sub, if you're sitting in America, current moment, maybe you need to identify as a black or a queer community. That's what this means. If you are in a particular locale in a Gurdwara or your party of the Punjabi six, you need to identify as being somebody who's Ravadasi or a Chamar. That's what this means. When you identify with the value system of Guru Nanak, uh, which is what Gyani uh, Singh was trying to, uh, was creating awareness for, and he succeeded. And I'll end with this. I think it's a great tribute, and I have to read this written by Pai Veer Singh, which is very important in the Sikh world because, you know, uh, Pai Khan Singh Nabha wrote after uh, Gyani Dit Singh finished, and Pai Veer Singh was just starting out. So he gave the platform for these other big giants, 
you know, he was an early riser of the literature. He's writing the first writings and the first professorships who's combining the indigenous knowledges. And Paiveer Singh wrote a great tribute to him. And I want to read those four lines. He says, at the death of Yani Dit Singh, he wrote, Jago Jago Ji Dit Singh Pyare, Kaum Bethi Sirhane Jagave. Kyon Kiti Need Pyare, Kyon Jag To Anu Aave Na Aave, Kadi Kaum Jagai Si Tenne, Lamme Kad Kad Vend Te Haave, Haan, Jag Ke Kaum Palkan, Aap Saan Gaj Ho Bedaave. He's like, there was a time when you woke up, and he's, he's Paiveer Singh is asking Yani Dit Singh, you know, in a, in a lyrical way, wake up, wake up, that's saying the nation, the Sikh calm is sitting near your pillow. And why are you not waking up? Once you awakened the entire nation, the Sikh nation, by praying, by crying, by howling, and by growling. But now after awakening the forgetful nation, you have gone sleep unattached. This is very important because this is the value system I think he imbibed, that he was married to the idea of the guru. He practiced it at the very high opportunity cost, including at a family level. You know, his daughter died before him, but had his own inclinations within his life. He dealt with his own conflicts, but he remained attached to the idea of ekovankar, the idea of one in a completely, what I would say, without making it religious or without making it atheist, which is the binaries we get caught up in. And he saw it in the realities of his community, in the confrontations of the East and the West, and with his Indian forms, and he completely raked havoc. I mean, he wrote an article when the Panth declared Gurmukh Singh to be an apostate, excommunication. He wrote an article why he's my friend. This is what you do. You know, when the privileged make wrong decisions to keep the control mechanism, you identify with the ones uh, who are joining the caravan to bring the change. And he was able to do that in his own world when he actually entered the house of the Guru, which to him was the same house of Guru Nanak and Guru Bhavad Singh. I always appreciate sitting in on these conversations and definitely learning much more than I ever expect to learn. So I think it's both evident, just not through my experience, but through the Q&A. I know, again, thank you to everyone tuning in for asking questions, for engaging in the chat, and to our presenters today. Our webinar will be ending now. You are listening to SickCast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.